welcome to Carl Chins Birmingham, brought to you by History West Midlands On Air. Well-known broadcaster and author Professor Carl Chin honours the working people, some famous but mostly forgotten, who shaped the history of Birmingham. He tells their stories as only he can, applauding their courage in adversity while recognising they were sinners as well as saints. Cadbury is an iconic name. It calls out of manufacturing success and of high quality products of good value. But crucially, it also calls out of business integrity, ethical relationships, a belief in worker participation, respect for the environment and a commitment to social welfare. Cadbury is indeed an iconic name on the world stage and crucially for the well-being of our region, it is one that is both made and based in Birmingham. Above all, it is a name that is inextricably associated with Bourneville. And that's where I am now, standing in the heart of the district, just in front of Bourneville Park and looking across to the Cadbury's recreation grounds, split by Bourneville Lane and the factory behind them. Nearby is Bourneville Green, Camps Wood and the expansive Rowheath playing fields. For anyone who had grown up in Old Birmingham, in areas like Aston, Hockley, Ladywood, Neutrals, Bordesley, Smallheath, Sparkbrook and Tysley, amongst others, then the sight of a factory amid such greenery would have been completely incongruous. There, many factories and works were packed hard and fast amidst housing, and there were few enough trees, let alone green spaces. Belching out smoke and grime, they enveloped the environment in darkness and pervaded with the grating smells of industry. By contrast, Cadbury's was praised as the factory in a garden. It opened here in Bourneville in 1879 when the brothers George and Richard Cadbury moved their expanding cocoa making and chocolate making business to a greenfield site that was then in Kings Norton, which was Worcestershire. The factory was surrounded by five farms. Lee House Farm was close to the present Lee House Road in Sturchley. Two Gates Farm was by the junction of Sycamore Road and Willers Road. Bournebrook Farm was by the crossroads of Linden Road and Bourneville Lane. Roheath Farm was at the meeting of Franklin Road and Oak Tree Lane and is recalled in Roheath Road. And Bournebrook Hall Farm, originally Barnbrook Hall Farm, later became the recreation ground for the young women who worked at the Cadbury Works. Four of these farms were owned by the Stock family, one of whose nurses is brought to mind in Mary Vale Road. Now, because French chocolate was regarded as peerless, the Cadbury's sought to show the superiority of their product by naming their new factory Bourneville connecting the name of the Bourne Brook to that of the French word for town. George Cadbury himself was responsible for the district which took its name from the works. He felt that monotonous types of housing characterised the developments which were transforming the nearby villages of Sturtry and Cottage. So he was determined that by contrast, Bourneville should progress and be developed according to Garden City principles. In 1899, he bought 120 acres of land and later 143 houses were built upon it. The following year, he set up the Bourneville Village Trust, which had control of 330 acres, and it was instructed to construct carefully thought-out houses in a rectangular cottage design with good gardens. The resulting estate became a model for town planners, and its attractive green look was emphasised with plentiful trees. Like Elm Road, many of the roads locally stressed the leafiness of Bourneville. The area joined Birmingham in 1911, along with the rest of Kings Norton, but now, as then, it remains an attractive suburb focused on its village green. But if Cabris is indeed inextricably bonded with Bonville, then it should not be forgotten that the company's origins and its early developments lie deep 
within central Birmingham. The Cabri story begins with John Cabri, a Quaker whose family hailed from the West Country and which had settled in Birmingham in the 1790s. All Quakers at that time faced religious discrimination. Unable to go to the universities of Oxford and Cambridge and consequently excluded from many professions, they threw themselves into business and commerce, but they did so by adhering staunchly to their beliefs. As pacifists, they eschewed those trades associated with war, and as teetotalers, they shrank from involvement in the brewing of beer or anything else alcoholic. Because of these constraints, one field of endeavour in particular appealed to them. That was the making of drinking chocolate and cocoa. From that appeal emerged the great chocolate firms of Fry of Bristol, Roundtree of York, and of course, Cadbury of Birmingham. After serving an apprenticeship with a tea dealer, John Cadbury set up his own shop in Bull Street in 1824, close to where I am now, at the junction of Bull Street with Corporation Street. His first advertisement emphasised his commitment to fair and principled dealing at a time when many shopkeepers adulterated their products. John Cadbury declared that he would sell only pure and genuine articles. His teas and coffees would be of the finest quality. His cocoa nibs for breakfast beverages would be most nutritious and all would be sold on advantageous terms. Cadbury was also alert to the need to show off his shop and so he installed a modern plate glass window. This stood out from the old fashioned green rib windows of other retailers and marked him out as progressive. The window itself was used as a display with tea chests, caddies, cone-shaped sugarloaves and Chinese vases decorated with flowers and butterflies. Inside, attention was drawn by an effigy of a Chinese man who was dressed exotically and colourfully. The tea itself was gathered in a silver scoop and weighed in brass scales suspended from the ceiling with lengthy chains. John Cadbury's trade was dominated by the sale of tea and coffee, but it's obvious that he was drawn most to the making of cocoa. This product had originated with the Mayan people of Central America. They roasted and then ground cocoa beans to make a thick liquid to which they added water, maize meal, vanilla and chilli pepper. This bitter drink became popular with the Aztecs of Mexico and following their conquest by the Spanish, the habit of chocolate drinking was taken to Europe. To make the taste less harsh and more sweet, the chilli pepper was left out and cinnamon, nutmeg and sugar were added. Chocolate drinking had come to England in the mid-1600s, but was only taken up by the rich because of the high cost of cocoa. It was here that milk chocolate became popular, devised by the celebrated physician and botanist Sir Hans Sloan. The chocolate was sold in blocks comprised of squares, two to an ounce. To make a drink, each ounce was added to a pint of boiling milk with sugar to taste. Later, Chocolate makers began to roast the cocoa beans, sift the kernels from the shells to produce the nibs, pound the broken nibs and then finally grind them. In 1795, Fry patented a new roasting process which was powered by a steam engine bought from Bolton and Watt of Birmingham. And by 1826, he was selling chocolate lozenges which were a pleasant and nutritious substitute for food when travelling. Although he had tried out his own processes by breaking up roasted cocoa beans with a pestle, John Cadbury did not become a manufacturer until 1831 when he rented a warehouse in Crooked Lane and he began experimenting in the making of cocoa and chocolates on a larger scale. Crooked Lane disappeared in the post-war redevelopment of Birmingham but used to run from where I've walked down to, the corner of Bull Street and High Street and looking across to Dale End. 
In those days, Crooked Lane went across Cherry Street to New Street. A narrow, winding lane, as its name suggests, it was close to Cadbury's fashionable shop. His warehouse in Crooked Lane was four storeys high and it had vaults below. And it was a favourable time to make the leap from a retailer to a manufacturer selling to the trade. The consumption of cocoa nationally was increasing from 122 tonnes in 1822 to 176 tonnes eight years later and to 910 tonnes by 1840. This growth was stimulated by a substantial reduction in the duty on cocoa in 1832, allowing the sale of chocolates and cocoa powders at popular prices and for general use in England. Yet, for all Cadbury's involvement with cocoa and later chocolate, it was his wholesale trade in tea and coffee that remained the mainstay of the business. This situation continued after 1847, when his Crooked Lane warehouses were knocked down to make way for the construction of a tunnel at the Great Western Railway. Forced out, Cadbury moved his business, first to Cambridge Street and then, just after a few months, to premises in Bridge Street. That's across Broad Street from what is now Centenary Square and almost opposite the modern Hyatt Hotel, which I'm looking up to as I speak. These new premises had a warehouse, counting house, coach house and stable. The main building itself had two floors. On the ground were the storehouse, roasting ovens, kibling mill and other machinery and above was the packing room. About this time, John was joined as a partner by his older brother, Benjamin Head Cadbury, who recently had given up the drapery shop which he had taken over from their father. Two years later, the brothers pulled out of the retail side of their business and passed the Bull Street shop onto one of John's nephews, Richard Cadbury Barrow. That year, in 1849, they showed chocolate, cocoa and chicory in various stages of manufacture at the Exposition of Art and Manufacturers, which was held in the grounds of Bingley House, the home of the Banking Lloyds, and now the site of the ICC, the International Convention Centre. And that's where I've come to. The display was eye-catching, and it is likely that it was noticed by Prince Albert, who attended the exhibition. The Bridge Street factory was a little way down Bridge Street, and that's where I've walked to now, almost opposite the modern Hyatt Hotel. Here, the Cadbury brothers gained a growing reputation, and in 1852, the factory and warehouses were visited by a London journalist called Walter White. He was impressed both by the location of the premises and the lack of smoke coming from the chimneys. That was achieved because of John Cadbury's keen support for smoke abatement. White then described the processes involved in the making of chocolate. The only cocoa beans used were those from Trinidad and Grenada in the Caribbean. 100 weights at a time, they were roasted in one of four cylindrical ovens which spanned slowly over a coke fire. After that, the husks were removed in a kibbling mill and the nibs were placed in double cylinders. Each was warmed by steam and had within it a rotating length of iron. The heat and pressure combined to free the cocoa oil into a thick, slab-like substance which flowed into a pan and was then ground between millstones. Heated once again, it became a more loose liquid. This was poured into another pan and mixed with arrowroot, sago and refined sugar, in a clear distinction to some manufacturers who used cheap additives such as red earth or a pigment called umber. Next, the mixture was issued into moulds where it was solidified into cakes or blocks which were cut into shavings by a wheel wielding four sharp blades. Lastly, these flakes were collected and passed through a sieve to make them into a powder and to prepare them for weighing and packing. The high standing of the Cadbury brothers was made clear in 1854 when the firm opened an office in London and received the royal appointment as cocoa manufacturers to Queen Victoria. 
Unfortunately, though, this accolade came in a most difficult period. Although the government of William Gladstone had reduced the duty on imported cocoa beans, the sales of cocoa and chocolates had fallen away during the terrible depression of the hungry 40s and then stagnated during the ensuing decade of the 1850s. These economic problems were made worse for John Cadbury by the loss of his wife and a long drawn out illness. In 1861, he followed his brother and stepped down from the firm. Although, in his broad-rimmed hat and white choker, he continued to walk through the factory most mornings. He was remembered fondly by Francis Stanley, who had started work for the firm in 1866 by labouring packets before moving on to essence packing. She thought of John Cadbury as an old friend, a man who was kind to all those who knew him. His compassion was as evident in his public life. He was an active governor of the General Hospital and took a special interest in watching the surgical operations at that institution, with a view to preventing any unnecessary cruelty being exercised upon the patients of the poorer class, an opinion at that time prevailing that the poor were operated on for the sake of medical science. Numerous other organisations captured his concern and commitment, including the Society for the Relief of Infirm and Aged Women, the Homeopathic Hospital and the Blind Asylum whilst he was also a strenuous campaigner against the use of climbing boys to sweep chimneys. I've walked up to the corner of Bridge Street and Broad Street and standing there it's hard to imagine there was once a chocolate factory in this location because all around me are the symbols and signs of New Birmingham, the ICC, the Hyatt and much more besides. But then Broad Street had many factories. They've all gone, as has gone the Cadbury factory in Bridge Street. So what happened when John Cadbury retired? Well, his concern was then taken on by two of his sons, Richard, who'd entered the company at the age of 15 in 1850, and George, who'd begun work six years later when he was 17. Mary Grigg, another Bridge Street worker, brought to mind that... Mr Richard was always smiling. Whilst we thought that Mr George was stern, but he was very just. H.G. E. Johnson was head of the firm's offices for 30 years from 1881 and he described the roles taken by the brothers. Richard Cadbury gave most of his time to the sales side, whilst George Cadbury did the same for the buying and manufacturing sides. But they consulted each other so much that no definite line seems to have existed. The brothers, though, were hard-pressed to survive in the early years of their partnership, as George recalled in 1913. The business was rapidly vanishing. Only 11 girls were employed. The consumption of raw cocoa was so small that what we now have on the premises would have lasted about 300 years. It would have been far easier to start a new business than to pull up a decayed one. But we were young and full of energy. Each brother had been left the great amount of £4,000 by their mother and they put the combined sum into the concern. Five years later, Richard's share had dwindled to just £150 whilst George, as he was not married, had £1,500. The situation looked so bleak that the brothers decided that if matters deteriorated, they would close up whilst they were still able to pay their creditors in full. They had five depressing years, but after each week they took stock and... We went back again to our work with renewed vigour, as George Cabri declared in 1913. The two of them were supported strongly by their workers. Tom King was a kibbler and he recalled that on the shop floor the hours were... Six o'clock in the morning to five in the evening, with half hour breakfast and one and a quarter hours dinner. The office staff laboured as strenuously. George Truman was appointed in 1862 as the firm's first clerk, and like the brothers, he put in a 13 hour day, six days a week. Gradually, the brothers began to turn the business around. 
They drop customers who are bad payers, introduce new products and pay great attention to marketing their produce. Importantly, they were also resolved to find a way of making pure cocoa. That was cocoa without any additives at all. The problem was that normal manufacturing processes left too much cocoa butter behind and unless some of it was absorbed by potato starch or sago, the taste of the drink was unpalatable. It was George Cadbury who made the breakthrough after he went to Holland and bought a press that expelled some of the cocoa butter, thus doing away with the need for starchy ingredients. In 1866, Cadbury's launched their new, unadulterated product called Cocoa Essence. It tasted wonderful. It was praised by writers in the medical journal The Lancet and it was sold in distinctive yellow packets. Customers were also attracted by a vigorous marketing campaign. Whole pages were taken out in newspapers and journals and were filled with favourable comments about the beneficial effects of the new product. A simple yet memorable slogan was adopted for use in such advertisements, as well as on shop fronts and on the sides of horse-drawn omnibuses. It proclaimed that Cadbury's cocoa essence was absolutely pure, therefore best. The new line caused consternation amongst the other manufacturers of cocoa, many of whom decried the idea of a pure product. But Cadbury was in tune with the political and public mood that was turning strongly against adulteration. Crucially, the new pressure machinery gave another impetus to the growth of Cadbury through the making of eating chocolates, for which cocoa butter is the essential ingredient. Mixed with sugar and added back into cocoa liquor, it allows chocolate to be set easily into moulds from which bars of chocolate emerge. With the cocoa butter that was left over, there was now an opportunity for the production of new kinds of eating chocolate. Refined plain chocolate was made for moulding into bars, whilst fruit-flavoured centres were covered with chocolate. Bertha Fackrell was one of the first people to make these creams. Like the other women workers, she changed into a clean, hard-wearing linen frock to carry on her job and recalled, above all... The job we had to call the work. There were small cupboards with ventilators round the room in which we placed the creams as they were made. Sometimes, when the boxes came for the work, it was not ready for use owing to the imperfect conveniences for cooling at that time, and that would settle work for that day. The slowly increasing trade in eating chocolate gave Richard Cadbury an opportunity to use his artistic talent. In 1869, he was responsible for the business becoming the first in the trade to put pictures instead of printed labels onto chocolate boxes. His designs highlighted youngsters, and often he used his own children as his models. Colour printed in sheets, they were pasted onto boxes and were sold with creams, ten to the ounce. The Christmas of 1873 proved to be a watershed, and the success of the new cocoa and eating chocolate lines allowed the Cadbury brothers to abandon their tea and coffee trade, as well as that of cocoa with additives. Thenceforth, the company made only chocolate and pure cocoa, and as such, it grew quickly. In 1868, there had been less than 50 workers at Bridge Street, but by the end of the 1870s, just before the move to Bourneville, there were 24 office workers and travellers, 66 male workers and 140 female workers. Yet, this success brought problems. The Bridge Street works were crimped and cramped in the middle of Birmingham and had no room for expansion. Larger and new premises were vital if the company's growth were to continue. Their awareness of this necessity led the Cadbury brothers to a momentous decision, the opening of the Bourneville Works in 1879. And I'm back in Bourneville now, in Bourneville Lane, near to the impressive entrances to the factory in a garden. That's the reason why 
Bourneville and Cadbury are synonymous and why both names resonate with good practice and iconic products. Colchins Birmingham is a History West Midlands production. For more information, visit the website at www.historywm.com.